on a day when the Supreme Court of the United States has unthinkably decided to end the nation's constitutional protections for abortion in place for nearly 50 years, I'm putting out this timely conversation with three people, Chanel Gallant, Elaine Lamb, and Shiri Pasternak, people that can help those on the left make sense of why this infuriating convergence of events and other oppressive forces is happening. This story is not just about the hyper-conservative right side of the court, fortified, as the Associated Press put it, by three appointees from former President Donald Trump. It's not just about those specific individuals. It's about how the decision reflects an unaccountable organization of power, an undemocratic capacity to control people's bodies on the basis of, quote, the nation's history and tradition. This is a moment where a deadly slide into zealous biopolitical overdetermination is likely to lead to, as Justice Clarence Thomas said in the ruling, the overturning of protections for same-sex marriage, gay sex, the use of contraceptives. Striking down Roe v. Wade is part of a broader attack by conservatives on racialized and marginalized people as well. It is happening within a legal system that is not so unlike Canada's either. Let's not get it twisted. As Chanel, Aline, and Shuri explain here, the legal system and the instruments of policing that enforce it historically support injustice. And more insidiously, the language of the law is in many cases strategically designed to make injustice and the continuation of state oppression appear more appealing to a mainstream public that is conditioned to disregard the margins and ignore the violence of the state. In Shiri's words, this is not an anomaly or a question of illegal practices. This is the blueprint of our country. Chanel Gallant has participated in grassroots movements for sex workers' rights and racial justice for 20 years as an organizer, writer, strategist, fundraiser, and speaker. She's on the leadership team for Showing Up for Racial Justice in the U.S., she co-founded the Migrant Sex Workers Project and has worked with sex work organizations locally and nationally, including Butterfly, Maggie's, Desiree Alliance, and Red Canary Song. Her writing about sexuality, social justice, and sex work has appeared in dozens of publications. Elaine Lamb is the founder and executive director of Butterfly, Asian, Asian and Migrant Sex Workers Support Network, and the Migrant Sex, and the Migrant Sex Workers Project. She's been involved in the sex work movement and migrant and labor activism for almost 20 years. She's also conducted training for community members, service providers, and policymakers on sex work, migration, anti-oppressive practice, and human rights in more than 20 countries. Shiri Pasternak is a researcher, writer, and organizer, and a professor of criminology at Toronto Metropolitan University in Toronto. She's the author of the award-winning book, Grounded Authority, the Algonquins of Barrier Lake Against the State, and the co-founder and former research director at Yellowhead Institute. Shiri notes that the book that she and two of her collaborators spoke with me about, Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, on Police Abolition in Canada, was in part the outcome of a gathering called the Abolition Convergence that was set to take place in Toronto in May 2020, but had to be cancelled due to COVID. They had planned, she says, to use the event to, quote, build trust and solidarity and understanding across movements. But rather than accept the cancellation of the event as an ending, 
the organizers and contributors decided to reformulate the project and reroute their energies into creating the book. This is reflective of a spirit of relentlessness that characterizes the movement for police abolition here in Canada. While Pasternak suggests that abolition in Canada is regularly thought of as a copycat movement that follows and reacts to political trends in the US, it's important to see the ways in which their local focus grows out of a commitment to communities and peoples who are directly impacted here by the violence of the settler colonial state. So for people looking for direction and a means of mobilizing, Disarm, Defund, Dismantle is a book that, as Aline Lamb explains, is important as a tool for organizing and not just as a source of academic analysis. In Chanel's words, the book highlights, quote, frontline community defense against policing and the theoretical political knowledge that comes from that work. We talk about the manipulative way that the figure of the, quote, average Canadian is invoked and how it's usually used to reinforce exclusion. Those seen as outsiders are more easily ousted, criminalized, punished, Lamb explains, because they're seen as harming the community of average Canadians. She argues that in this context, the anti-trafficking movement, the anti-sex work movement, benefits everyone except sex workers. So police, law enforcement, politicians, she says, become the heroes, and power flows to the police as a result. There's a lot here too that is specifically focused on the conditions for transformation. Chanel makes it clear that, quote, it depends on your point of view whether you consider abolition pragmatic or not. While she, as she puts it, can't think of anything more practical than creating institutions that affirm life, those who benefit from the status quo will continue to be, in Sherry's words, deputized to enforce white supremacy in this country. What will it take to break the identification of working class people in Canada with white owning classes? What will it take to dismantle the basic logic of property rights by which so much containment, enclosure and capture continues? How do we grasp at the roots of oppression here in Canada and elsewhere? Obviously, I want to say uh, welcome and, and thank you for putting together this uh, incredible anthology, Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada uh, from Between the Lines. It's a book that I guess I wanted to start by addressing in terms of its own like impetus. Um, you talk in the introduction about this one tweet uh, that I, I certainly took note of from Asma Nizami, that, you know, it's really cool, as she writes, how we went from learning how to make banana bread to learning how to abolish the police in weeks. Um, and, you know, there's some interesting reflections on what that sort of symbolized that tweet. Obviously, you know, uh, it's it's the second anniversary, as it were, of uh, George Floyd's death at the hands of police. And there is now a, a, a lot of media attention around where movements are at in, for abolition and and so, you know, the thing that you say about that tweet and, and the moment that it marked of a sudden transition is that it was impressive that people could, quote, switch gears from isolation baking to insurrection. Um, but it also, as you say, gets at how seamless the transition to collective learning and action can be when the moment is ripe. And um, there's this notion that the book itself is a it, it grows out of a groundswell of community action. Um and so, yeah, I mean, like it's it's and, and I, I kind of want to come back to that question of, of the seamlessness of the transition and the groundwork that was already 
established for like this this moment to seemingly come out of nowhere. But where are you in terms of reflecting on what felt like the genesis of this book and the genesis of, you know, a growing kind of even mainstream discussion around abolition? It's a really important time, I think, to be reflecting on this question of where we're at since for many, I think, the spark of abolition was lit with George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. But the book, I think, tells a really local story about that movement for abolition and how the eruption wasn't as seamless as it might have seen on the surface. Um, Here in Toronto, we had been planning for a gathering called the Abolition Convergence that was supposed to be held in May 2020, but was obviously cancelled in the first wave of COVID. And what was so remarkable about that that organizing is that we started two years before the conference. And the intention was that we weren't just going to try to get everyone together for hot takes on abolition, but that we were going to approach the organizing itself as an opportunity to build trust and solidarity and understanding across movements between the organizers. And so for two years, we sat at tables every couple of weeks with people who were involved in fighting migrant detention, fighting for sex worker rights, fighting for Indigenous sovereignty, fighting for housing and shelter, anti-poverty, and labor movements, and so many other movements that had identified the failures of police reform and accountability movements, and also identified historically the roots of policing and prisons in um, different efforts across time towards social control uh, for various ends. And we all sat at those tables together for so long that when the conference was canceled, it wasn't the end of the movement for us. It wasn't the end of the effort. It was really the beginning of a reformulation of what that movement would look like. And so quite quickly, um, we came back together and someone suggested, Kevin Walby suggested, why don't why don't we try to do a book project? And part of that came out of the conversations around abolition sparked by the murder of George Floyd were, um, you know, in the Canadian context, were quite readily dismissed as a copycat movement that was just... Uh, borrowing from the politics of American activists and trying to apply them here in a context where it didn't fit. And so because we had been doing this work for a couple of years and we already had the network in place, we reached out to people and said, "Let's is anyone interested in putting together a collection that shows what abolition looks like on these lands and quickly people added other people and the network grew from the, you know, small sort of pod that, that was that like initiated the thread. And over the course of around a year, sort of people came in and dropped out based on their capacity. But what we ended up with was, is a really vibrant example of the kinds of struggles across Canada that are abolitionist and, This is kind of a local expression of how that movement building was already in place. Yeah, it really marks that uh, that specific history, right? The the recognition of a legacy of social control on these lands now called Canada. Um, You know, chapter nine by Free Lands, Free Peoples talks about a carceral continuum in this country from residential schools to prisons 
um, and how they've informed and, and co-constituted one another. We can we can kind of uh, uh, jump into it, but uh, Aline and Chanel, did you want to follow up at all on what Shuri was saying? Yeah, I think I just want to add this book is very important because this is not the book only for reading, but this is I think this is a very important tools as a part of movement, and I think this is very important to I think a lot of people um uh, draw the attention is because they see the the violence on the screen, but I think this book also uh uncover a lot of like um systematic violence from police and criminalization and policing not only carry out uh by the physical violence but that is the huge violence actually we need to address and i think this is also very very uh important for this book it speaks to what Cherry was saying around just you know not about collecting hot takes it's a it's about trying to build itself like as a text uh, or inspire trust and solidarity and opposition to injustice. Um, and on that point, I think, you know, on page 113 of the book, uh, the Sex Workers of Winnipeg Action Coalition uh, is literally providing a list of six steps for community-led defunding efforts, right? Those tools. Um, and it's doing so in opposition to what they call the city of Winnipeg's, quote, cowardice in failing to control the expansion of the police department. Mm-hmm. Um so there's this specific language of mobilization for political courage that is being both documented and modeled in the book. Um, and so, you know, I just I, I'm, I'm interested in kind of talking about the political pragmatism that exists in the book, how it attempts to, you know, embody that need for radical care and what you call relational accountability instead of just like endless reform. You know, I think this is a little bit rooted to the idea that abolition is somehow inherently just a negative or purely critical project rather than having some kind of vision. Um, But you're also, you know, trying to counter uh, what you say is this dominant perception of the movement for abolition, that it does represent a certain naivete or disconnection from reality. Um, Where have you encountered that and how do you counter that? maybe to Chanel this time? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because when we've talked about uh, this book in our chapter before, we recently spoke in a class and um, Shiri Nolene will remember one of the first questions we got was from a student who said, well, something like abolition is so pragmatic, but, um, Hmm. and so, and we we were all really delighted by the question because Um, it really depends on your point of view, whether you consider abolition pragmatic or not. I consider it to be incredibly, exceedingly pragmatic. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's literally, it's kind of like, um, you know, I think of the police as having a boot on the neck of marginalized communities. And all you're doing is starting by taking the boot off the neck. It is very obvious that it's hard to fix problems it's hard to address the root causes of any social problems under the conditions of police, social control, violence, um, kind of the economic exploitation of policing where all of our um, community wealth is, is uh, stolen and poured into these systems of, systems of policing. And so it's actually just really practical to just, you know, something like defunding. Just stop Mm -hmm. pouring billions of dollars into a murderous system that doesn't fix social problems and causes them. That's really not rocket science. Hmm. Um, 
and and then free up uh, the possibilities of actually addressing social problems. And you know, um, and and when you talk about you know your question of, uh, mentioned something about abolition being seen as a negative thing, and I think that's why so many people are referring back to this quote from Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who says, abolition is about presence, not absence. It's about building life-affirming mm-hmm. institutions, right? Mm-hmm. So we stop mm-hmm. the bleeding. That's kind of like just, you know, reducing the power and the size, the scope and the budgets of policing. It's just like putting a tourniquet on. You just, you stop the damage and harm that that institution is causing. Call, you know, pause on that. So that we have the capacity to build the institutions that we need that actually do affirm life. To me, I can't think of anything more practical. Absolutely. I, I have to, I personally agree. And of course, I'm not playing devil's advocate by any means. I'm just sort of summoning the the carceral logics that are, you know, uh, that erect a wall against these transformative solutions that, as you say, might stop the bleeding. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. The police are the wall against what we need. And yeah. um my declarative tone is just the way I speak. <laughs> it's not it's not that I thought you were playing devil's advocate. Sure, sure. It's just how I speak. No, that's great. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think to counter the the this wall of ideology, um, you know, you're you're invoking the experience of so many of your contributors. And to me, that's like very different from purely abstract engagements with abolition. You say in the introduction that you hoped your mix of methods is effective at communicating the urgency of abolition. And that speaks to the fact that you are providing people with theoretical tools as well. Um, do you feel like you got that mixture of like evidence-based, theoretical, and experiential methods as right as you could? And how did that sort of come into being? I guess I'm asking this to you, Sherry, as the sort of editor of the volume. Yeah, well, let me just say, I think all the editors are pretty unanimous in disavowing any kind of like claims to the actual intellectual labor of the book. We really felt like mm. administrators just you know, sending the emails and reminding people of deadlines. Um, so I feel like anyone could also answer this question. But I also think, you know, what Chanel and Elaine's chapter demonstrates, as well as all the others, is that there's a false, there's these false binaries between theoretical, intellectual, and practical work that I think every single chapter demonstrates. And I think that's why, you know, I agree with Elaine that it's an important book for for its uniqueness right now um, on abolition in Canada, because it really speaks from the intellectual and experiential Um, context across movements. And I think this is where the theory is generated. I think for sure, some people may have more historical knowledge about different aspects of the movement, different experiential knowledge about histories of movements, debates, discussions, tensions, and so on. But I really think that that is the Um, really, really important um, work of abolition. It's not, it's to recognize the intellectual and experiential contributions of people who are most impacted by police violence and by the prison system. 
um, and to learn from them about what the alternatives could look like, how people are fighting from within, what kind of support and solidarity is critical across movements and within movements. And I think that, that that's the kind of methodological contribution that the book makes from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to kind of build from that, there is this, again, to maybe come back to the first thing I, I mentioned, there is this sense uh, really conveyed very emphatically in the book that um, there's a deep sort of debt, I suppose, or, or you know, a, a continuum of sort of liberatory politics that you're drawing from, too. And it's that that made it's that thing that made um, abolition, as you say, um, uh, so legible so quickly and widely during the summer of 2020. Making you know, it, it's not like this book is again about like these these completely novel takes on. It's not it's trying not trying to kind of intervene in that way. It's mm-hmm. instead like trying to itself build on, uh, you know, black feminist organizers and scholars in the United States, you say, and you mentioned Ruth Wilson Gilmore, certainly Angela Davis was just making this uh, point recently in the Haymarket Roundtable. And I guess, you know, politically, why was it so important to make it clear that this movement for defunding and dismantling the police was not new and not a fad? Why was that so important to emphasize from, from any of your points of view? I could take the first approach to answering the question, which is, I think this book, one of the things that makes this book really rich is reading through it. You have a really, really deeply entrenched analysis across almost every single contribution that understands anti-colonial abolition movements to be an integral part of critiques against police and prisons in this country. And I think that anti-colonial abolition critique is interwoven and intersecting across the chapters with, uh, you know, anti-racist analysis, but also a particular analysis of what anti-Blackness looks like in this country. And so I really think the way that abolition is historicized so important because it's kind of an in, in indigenous, and I mean that in the kind of generic sense of indigenous, like specific to place here, analysis of abolition that is quite different, not necessarily in terms of like um, uh, denying the conjoined genocides in the United States um, of enslavement and abolition, but in terms of their expression, articulation, the particular like historical configuration of enslavement and genocide, and um, you know migrant labor and violence and so on, racism in this country, they're different. They have different expressions and different histories. And I think um, in disarm, defund, and dismantle, there's a kind of um, there's a there's an interesting and specific historicization of abolition that's I think important to pay attention to, and in many ways I think the analysis of anti-colonial abolition has informed people's understanding of white supremacy across other movements as well, and likewise um, the kinds of racism that we're seeing across society today are really informed in turn by 
histories of um, of um, you know migrant labor um, and um, the ongoing uh, racial immigration policies and labor policies uh, that continue to inform uh, Canadian society. To just sort of quickly um, underline something you said, like this idea that there is an anti-colonial abolitionist critique that kind of flows through the book and then like back through the history that precedes the book. Abolition is a term that is meant to specifically echo the abolition of slavery. Um, that it, for that reason, is sort of almost uncooptable. Um, you know, it, it, there are ways in which even the language of revolution has been kind of co-opted by the capitalist state. Abolition resists that, I think. Oh, do we have something to say about that? Okay, okay. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Elaine and I, our whole chapter is actually, um, you know, we don't talk about it at length in our chapter. Our chapter is really about um, why police abolition is so critical for migrant sex workers. Um and I think we make reference to briefly, but there's a whole thing that leftists in general don't know is happening, which is that the right-wing Christian and carceral feminists actually did co-opt the term abolition. They co-opted it back in the mid-1800s and then again uh, picked it up again about 25 years ago. And they used that term to refer to the abolition of sex work. Right. And they call themselves abolitionists and they freely, they name their organizations, things like free the slaves. Hmm. They refer to legislation that criminalizes sex work. They'll name it after slave, uh, like uh, black abolitionists who fought for the freedom of uh, enslaved Africans. Like it, you know, and, and the thing is, I wish it was less co-optable. And a lot of our work is trying to take back the language of abolition and insist that it, again, I'm not saying anything that you're saying this, you know, I just, um, no, no. Um, I appreciate it's it. It's just no. me highly caffeinated. So uh, I would love for um, the term to be uh, you know, it's it's been an extremely racist co-optation um, because it, it was co-opted by a, a conservative, white, carceral, um, often Christian, this alliance between uh, conservative American politics, uh, evangelical churches, and carceral white feminists who have created an alliance to use the language of abolition to because they consider sex work and specifically prostitution to be a form of slavery. Right. And then view their work to outlaw it, to criminalize it um, as abolition. And it's really unfortunate. And so a lot of the work we do is bridging between sex workers uh, movements that face criminalization in the name of quote unquote, like a fake abolition and real actual abolitionist movements. Elaine, do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I think this is like what you say. You can see it really is a project. We call it like anti-trafficking industry that how they work together to uphold the sub uh, white supremacy, how they use um, like uh, the language of abolitionists to to draw a lot of support, no matter funding, to justify the violence that they in like keep increasing policing, increasing 
uh, criminalization. And of course, we know that how racialized people, marginalized people are um, being targeted. And I think this is important for this book is because it's not only like um, having that abstract discussion. And I think it's a, uh, we are really appreciate that this um, also have a lot of contributors from uh, sex worker community because sex worker is often the target of criminalization and, and policing. And then to know about what is actually happened on the ground and then how um, different uh, grassroots organizer, uh, organization is contribute in, in the co- concrete um, suggestion what mean uh, defend police, what mean uh, abolitionists. And I think this is a very important, um, uh, as you say, that this book have the uh, abstract uh, piece, but I think this is also very important to have this like a practical, uh, concrete uh, um, information for the, for the reader. Mm-hmm. It's this like beautiful motile like thing, this book. And it does like, you know, I'm constantly having to like t- step back and realize how little I actually understand about the movement for abolition, for police abolition. Um, it is not, it's not uh, reducible um, to these kind of easy phrases, like claiming that it's, it's like uncooptable, even, even a term as seemingly radical as this can be misused and abused. Um, and yeah, so I mean, we can kind of jump ahead to your your chapter in some sense, because, you know, you are taking aim at anti-trafficking laws. But I think like tactically, and, and it does seem like it's a question of, of inventing and then reinventing the tactics, like that that appeal is kind of tricky in the sense that one might assume the quote unquote average Canadian is not going to like disagree with these laws that putatively try to prevent human trafficking. Like it's a horror that induces this like spontaneous fear in people. And and it's so like, it's within that space that abolition gets co-opted in particular. Um, This idea that the world is this inherently dangerous place that requires carceral measures to control it. But the thing you're trying to expose in, in your piece is this idea that it is in fact carceral thinking and carceral policies that produce many of the dangers that exist, uh, especially for racialized people and people at the economic margins. Um, so could you just like explain what is uh, uh, what you argue in your piece, what's in- basically inherently harmful about the model of anti-trafficking and why it needs to be dismantled and abolished in favor of preserving the rights of sex workers? I think why this chapter is so important is really show the harm of the anti-trafficking movement. And it's not only the law, but whole mechanism, whole giant mechanism with tons of funding, tons of like police power, and tons of involvement of NGO because they are using the name of rescue and helping and using the language of abolitionists. They're using the language of human rights to make the people think this is a good thing and cannot resist it and make the resistance of it is more difficult because they use anti-trafficking as the name to cover the real agenda is actually criminalization Mm -hmm. is like anti-migrant is racist is anti-sex work so that is make them become so successful because they 
can draw so much uh, support by um, cover their real agenda. And I think what we really want to do with this book is one, is we really want to show the harm. This is not the unintended harm. What we always heard from now many anti-trafficking organizations, they say, oh, this is unintended harm. How we can reduce unintended harm by uh, bringing the police. But this is the system, this is the movement, uh, this is the policy to design to control and oppress and and uh, certain people, particular racialized migrant and sex workers. So that's just, I think this is very important for this chapter. It's really try to solve um, the problem of the anti-trafficking movement, including the law. The law is is one big part that give the power of law enforcement. And but more is important to make the people think behind why we think. The anti-trafficking movement is the good thing, and and mm-hmm. when they actually do the harm, and why the sex worker voice is keep being like a silent. So, for example, now they are shutting down all the massage parlor in Newmarket, and then they think they say this is protect the woman. How you can protect the woman by taking away the job, right? And then how mm-hmm. you can protect the woman by bringing the police in everyday life of the worker when the police is the major violence of the sex worker. And and of course, of course, different uh, sex worker, but you see how racialized and migrant is the target, including trans, right? That they are the target of long history of target of policing and they now to to use this to justify. So, and I don't know if you realize the recent funding, like, Every month, you can see the news like like eight million dollar to send to um Naga for police to anti trafficking work to rescue and protect the women. You don't see a lot of like like a pushback, right? Because they are using the name right. And by anti trafficking movement, uh, the police can become the hero, can become the rescuer, and and this saver narrative is really uh covered the 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 they are the the agent of uh imposing the oppression and violence and 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 yeah mm-hmm. yeah it becomes this shield against sort of identifying police abuses of power this like you know powerful narrative of of heroism this glorification of police um chanel did you want to uh extend that um yeah i mean I think when you, you know, you mentioned like is the average canadian really going to think twice about human trafficking laws um, I think there's a couple things there. Um, the first is, uh, most people don't really know what's in these laws and they don't know how they're enforced. And, um, and we're going up against, like you said, the kind of the ways that we have been trained to have a viscerally, um, emotional reaction to, uh, the idea of human trafficking, which associates it with sex work, um, but particularly with racialized sex workers and migrant sex workers. And what we're really, this is part of why we wanted to be in this book and why it's so, um, it's so amazing that there are multiple sex worker perspectives in this book. Um, And the editors just did such a great job at uh, not tokenizing sex worker movements, but really lifting up sex worker movements as both, like Shiri said, like, I don't, I don't remember exactly how you put it, Shiri, but basically, like, it's kind of both frontline, like highlighting, you know, frontline 
community uh, defense against policing, and at the same time lifting up the you know theoretical and political knowledge that comes from that work. And we wanted to be in that conversation with other leftists and abolitionists, um, and because uh, to expand the solidarity between sex worker migrant justice and abolitionist movements so that those understandings and that pushback against human trafficking law can, we can build power, you know, we need to build power against the anti-trafficking industry and we need solidarity to do that. Um, and will the, will the average Canadian understand it at this point? Some do, Mm -hmm. some do mostly just because people, I think one of the most important things for uh, people to understand about the anti-trafficking industry is just that it's policing. It's just policing. And so if you know a little bit about policing, then you might um, have a better, uh, be more likely to question whether or not it's capable of actually protecting people and especially whether it's really capable of protecting, you know, low income and racialized women in the sex industry. Of course it's not. Right. It's it's yeah. it's there to control and punish. It's not there to protect. Um, yeah, I think I'll just leave it there. I think. Yeah. And I think you make that point so convincingly in the article, like you move from political demands to examples of harm and then back to these profound political demands, um, you know, like, again, extending it into like broader the broader need to kind of um, decarcerate to end mass incarceration uh, but also, you know, sort of uh, expunge carceral thinking. Uh, the, the thing I wanted to pick up on, though, is this um, this question of, like, I guess the average Canadian, which is never a real thing. It's just this figure that gets invoked uh, for various political ends, I think. Um, and, and yet, you know, like, there are studies that try to gauge sort of public opinion. The Wortley re- Report, for example, um, you know, that was written here in uh, or about policing in Halifax revealed a lot of division around, you know, who believes the police are there providing an essential function and who believe that, you know, the police uh, uh, are prone to abuses of power, are overfunded and so on. And, and while there was that division, what was really interesting was that there was like uh, almost a unanimous sense that the police primarily protect the wealthy that there was like obvious gaps in terms of, um, you know, distribution of harm and pr- provision of, of support and safety, depending on like where you come from economically. Um, and so, I mean, like, I think we can pick up on that and sort of think about how, you know, gentrification plays a role in this process of decriminalization. So in the essay by Maggie's Toronto Sex Workers Action Project, they explain that the capitalist state, quote, seizes these opportunities to tear our buildings buildings down and create supposedly better plan, more gentrified spaces. This is, as they say, quote, displacement framed as neighborhood improvement. Again, something that's like difficult perhaps to sort of argue against because like the idea is we all want to live in these like beautiful, creative, you know, buzzworthy like spaces of gentrified improvement, so, so-called. But as a means of thinking about abolition in this space, um, and equality, radical equality, uh, equity in these in these spaces. I wondered if you could like expand on the idea that, uh, as Ellie Ad Kerr and Jenny Duffy write, 
there is, quote, no meaningful resistance to police violence, racial capitalism, and the carceral state that excludes sex workers. Um, why do you think these struggles, you know, against the kind of moralistic condemnation of sex work and the sort of more, uh, like, I guess, explicitly economic argument against gentrification need to be, like, connected here? So for me, that I think you use the term like average Canadian. So I think every time when I hear this word, I feel so uncomfortable. Like who are this average Canadian? Mm-hmm. Who who are the voice being heard? Who are the voice being excluded? And I think this is how related to this like white supremacy and capitalism and then certain people is designed in this system continues to to better off maintain the power, maintain the money, resources, including the land, right? So, and I think police is taking mm. a very important role, you know, continues to use violence that to exclude the people, right? So, for example, people in the park, why homeless people cannot use the park and by framing them in certain way that they can be uh, e- e- evicted, same as the massage parlor, that they often being called as like CS outsider, they need to get rid of city, no matter say they are the traffic victim or mm-hmm. illegal, same as the street-based sex worker that and, and also drugs use uh, people that they are being perceived as the harm of the community instead of like parts of the community because behind that um the, who are uh, the, the 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 wealth they are protecting right so and i think that is very dangerous when we like over often use the term like average canadian so that is what we see is so often this kind of message is to justify the oppression that particularly those people like migrant racialized and marginalized uh, including like the the lgbt community their voice is not uh, being heard and then so that's why the the gentrification projects like that they, when they change the name become mm-hmm. uh, 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 a city improvement right same as like the the ray of of the sex worker now become rescue of the uh, traffic victim then then to justify but actually it's the same thing right but then it's like they make so-called mm. average Canadian really buy it because when you say so-called average Canadian, that that they are the the influential in mainstream media, they have also very strong, like many of them also have very strong like anti-migrant agenda or anti-sex work or like even like racist agenda. They may not able to explicitly say that, but when this kind of of campaign, you know, or like this kind of I keep call, calling this like project, like um coming in so that they are so easy to buy in because they have like so many mm-hmm. things aligned. I, I think I have discussed with Chanel why this white feminist is so can connect with this white very like racist oppressive politician and with the church why they are coming together so well because of course they are coming together to yeah. to continue to maintain the power and wealth of certain people, right? And of course, it's just like that the the the, the white middle class people and and they hold this um moralistic um value. I think that's what makes your chapter so essential. You know, is that it is making these connections clear and felt, and it's it's like using intersectionality, but not just as this kind of like 
um, you know, fashionable concept. Like it's, it's making clear how the social reality of intersecting oppressions needs to be seen and felt and experienced as a frame for questioning how comfortably the media, for example, will invoke that figure of the average Canadian in order to just further marginalize those that, um, you know, yeah, do occupy that intersectional, uh, like subjectivity or identity. Um, I want to um, switch gears in a second and, and talk about, uh, Sherry, your your chapter, um, Canada is a Bad Company, in a second. But I guess just to kind of um, stay on that thread, uh, Elaine, of, of, you know, thinking about white feminism, you know, your article talks about uh, feminist organizations, specifically like the w, uh, YWCA and the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies and how they are, in fact, implicated in the perpetuation of harm. But the article expresses this like disappointment and anger with those organizations. Like it's it's clear that you really you, you feel it very deeply this like outrage or even like incredulity of like, you know, why is it that you're so in collusion? Um, you know, why are these particular feminist organizations like the YWCA and the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies so attached to their own, you know, kind of like um, uh, relationship of, I guess, mutual benefit with the police? I mean, like you should ex kind of expect more perspective and commitment from those groups, but they don't seem to be almost like capable of it. What would it take for them to kind of like come to terms with their own complicity with the criminalization of sex work? And what are the historical roots of that that maybe prevent that like realization? Let me start by saying that there are really long historical roots between social work uh, and uh, what I would say is actually racist white feminism. You know, I think that's sort of a missing piece sometimes when we talk about white feminism. It's not just white women doing feminism. It's an institution uh, the institutionalization of a, um, a a white supremacist version of feminism, and there's you know I I, I feel like there's a, a lot of people who could speak to um, the history of social work as being um, an institution that developed out of anti-blackness and colonialism that empowered white women to have outsized power and control over the intimate uh, and family lives of black and indigenous people over the, the ways, you know, the family forms, the way of living, I mean, everything, gender, sexuality. Um, and that's, there's a, you know, that's the, the institution of social work is just inextricably connected to white supremacy in Canada and the U.S. And so um, I think in our chapter, yes, we're angry about it. We're kind of amazed. I think what we're amazed by is that there has been such a broad pushback on the role of policing in the lives of poor and working class and racialized women that um, what's surprising is that that pushback hasn't moved for so many organizations and so many uh, women in social service organizations that hasn't moved and necessarily moved their approach to the criminalization of sex work, even though sex workers are almost entirely 
uh, marginalized women and queer people. They're poor, working class, women of color, um, black indigenous women, migrants, trans, uh, drug users, single mothers, like, you know, though that's, you know, sex workers are marginalized women and queer people. And, um, and so I think it's not surprising that there's, um, you know, the, the social sector views, it takes a very kind of racist and classist view of sex workers. What's surprising is that the sector hasn't been um, hasn't challenged itself more around the criminalization of sex work, given that it is questioning the role of policing in women's lives increasingly. Mm. I think that's what I would say. And I'm interested in both um, Elaine and Shiri, your thoughts on that too. Yeah, I think I want to add, of course, this is angry. Why I am so angry, why people need to be angry is because on the one hand, they keep saying that how they uphold the rights of women, how they really care mm. about the women, particularly Elizabeth Fry, they are doing the work to support the people in prison. And and then so they keep talking about the harm, how uh, criminalization is harming the women. But on, on the other hand, they are the major lobbyer to criminalize sex work and to put sex worker, and many of them are women, into the prison. And at at that process, they benefit a lot. They got tons of funding for continues to support the women in prison. On the other hand, they also get a lot of exiting funding to force the sex worker to exit the sex work. So this is no different with the conversion therapy like before they make the people to change the gender. And we need to know social work actually is important uh, uh, agent to exercise the state power in the name of helping, as Chanel say, the how social work through CAS, how social work through immigration service, that they change the people lifestyle to certain way, of course, is the white middle class value, right? So, for example, mm-hmm. other example is how the policing go to people every day. Like they have a lot of parental program, that how they use it to put that colonized idea of how children should be raised. How CS become the agent, particularly we see how, um, how like um much uh, black and indigenous community in the CAS system. So this is, uh, people know how it's harmful of the um, uh, residential school, but then actually what the um, uh, child welfare system is doing still the same, right? They don't put mm-hmm. people in residential school now, but they still put people in shelter or like in other kind of like, like childcare facility actually is, is the nature is the same, still try to, you know, control and maintain the power. Of course, sex work is still also uh, the place they they often police and we when we look at those um uh, uh organization how they are benefit from that and also we see particularly related to anti-trafficking movement how so many new organization by these so-called feminists and and get huge funding continues um maintain and promote this moralistic idea and and promote this uh Policing and many of them, when you see who are they, and many of them, they got so much, like uh, awarded and become human rights 
defender, and we see how so many celebrity love to join this movement because this is so much like social asset they can gain.、Mm. We say anti-trafficking movement, anti-sex work movement is an everyone benefit except sex worker, right? So like police, law enforcement, politician become the hero, and this like um feminists. I don't call them feminists actually. <laughs> <laughs> I. They love police more than the woman, so they give power to the police and prison. Not give power to the woman. They are not the real feminists in my eyes.、Mm-hmm. I, I've I haven't heard that point made very often. That even calling them carceral feminists is giving them sort of too much credit in some sense. Like you, they don't they don't earn that. Yeah, it's like calling it's like calling people who want to criminalize abortion pro life. We know、sure. they're not pro life. They they couldn't be less pro life. They they couldn't be more pro death. Absolutely. Right, but、um, you know, we they refer to themselves as feminists or women's advocates,、um, but they're willing to sacrifice women.、Uh, so I, I think yes, that should disqualify them from the term feminist. If you believe in the criminalization of sex work, and that's all anti-trafficking legislation is, I don't think people know that that anti-trafficking legislation does nothing else except criminalize sex work. There's nothing in it. That is novel, right? There's nothing in an anti-trafficking law or policy that isn't covered by other laws and policies, which aren't effective, right?、Mm-hmm. But we've already got laws against sexual assault, or you know, in,、uh, abduction, or physical、mm-hmm. assault, or、uh, labor exploitation. The only thing that happens in an anti-trafficking policy is to criminalize sex work, and that criminalizes sex workers. There's no way to do sex work without falling under, like falling in, you know, in violation of the law. Um, and、uh, people in these social service organizations, and an organization like Elizabeth Fry or YWCA that provides services to women who've、uh, been through the criminal legal system, would know that.、Mm-hmm. The, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know that. But if you are working in community with women who have had contact with the law and with police, you know that they are exposed to harm as a result of laws that criminalize sex work. And I think, yeah, that's like Elaine was saying. That's where some of the Horror and outrage comes from our our quote unquote feminist allies who、um, who are on the wrong side and not fighting to pull these laws off of women's lives. Yeah, I may use one of examples. So we have a, a, a member of Butterfly. She has been living very well, and she do sex work and sometimes support other sex worker. As because of sex work is being criminalized, when you help other sex worker to answer the phone, you know, help to book the appointment, so that is all being criminalized. So that what happens is when the woman get charges, all her money being taken away, she lost her home and and lost even the phone, tablet, everything, have nothing, and then they they're being flown out on the street, and then is is the the criminalization is the law and police. Make them become so vulnerable, and they get charged. They need to go to the prison, and then so they need to seek help from this organization that they got tons of funding, and then to but 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 for 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 the sex workers, sometimes they 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 cannot get the resources, or they may need to rely on this organization to give them the support in order. To support them to navigate in this criminal、mm-hmm. system, so this is the example that how they create the problem and benefit from that and make the sex worker be marginalized and need to rely on the system. Other example is um a sex worker get raped and her phone being taken away, and then there is a very caring social worker say, "Oh, what I can help you? I can give you a phone." And she was being taken all her money in an expensive phone, and then. 
the this social worker give her a shitty phone. What does it mean? So and and then but they bring in the social work to to justify this system and and justify this same as like now um many people say they need to ask like um uh instead of calling police that calling social worker and that's uh, uh, calling social worker to work together with police and I think bringing social work do not make the police work be more just less harmful and so and also how the NGO keep producing number of human trafficking that support those policing and machine we have talked to tons of social service provider and i think one chapter also have done a research with the social service provider because of the funding driven many of them have been serving homeless people sex worker for a very long time but now they need to shape all the story become like a human trafficking in order to gain the funding or maintain the funding so but then it's like they they keep um uh, uh, support like the bubble, you know, there's moral panic and and the fake statistic of human trafficking to support those like all human anti-trafficking uh, uh, initiatives. So including increased policing, in, including like extensive increase of funding for law enforcement. Um, there's this whole apparatus, it, it sounds like, that um, is, is difficult to uh, move. It's difficult to reshape. And, and yet you're you know, obviously determined to do that work uh, because of your direct experience. And, and it is astonishing that there are these organizations that witness violence directly and still are not changed. Um, you know, that exists in Canada. This, this, there's an article in the book uh, by Julius Hag that writes about this like Canadian myth of tolerance, nonviolence and civility and a national exceptionalism that represents, as, as Julius puts it, a denial of difference. Um, there's this like myth of benevolence um, in Canada that is clearly in contradiction with the growth in police expenditures. Again, I'm quoting the article, uh, police expenditures, despite a declining cl- crime rate. Um, it seems very hard to expose it in Canada because of, because of this like mythology um, that exists. I mean, like, yeah, like in the face of actual like you know spikes in anti-indigenous violence spikes in in violence against um communities of color um there's still this kind of resilient mythology um and i guess you know to connect it to nova the nova scotian context um you know there's there's another fantastic piece in the book by freelance free peoples that i gestured to earlier where they talk about how quote um settler lay people uh, act to both trigger and enforce the criminalization of indigenous people. In the same way that there are intersecting oppressions, I think th- this piece is sort of identifying that there are intersecting and overlapping kind of white supremacist empowerments and sources of of privilege that seep into uh, Canadian society. And they're saying like so-called settler lay people are deeply complicit with the the spike in like white vigilantism that has been directed, for example, at Mi'kmaq communities here in Nova Scotia. Um, you know, Ardath, why not talk to me about this kind of normalization of like unauthorized enforcement in these kind of under-policed South Shore communities where, you know, a lobster fishery was burned down and the RCMP knew in advance that it was going to take place. Um, the police were actually complicit in the violence there. And I wondered, you know, Sherry, if you could come in here and, and sort of address um, that section of the text, maybe in relationship to your contribution, like the idea that settler lay people 
are part of the perpetuation of anti-indigenous racist police policing. Like, you know, something like the Freedom Convoy comes to mind too. this like white supremacist far right fringe, Um, you know, like any thoughts on how the quote unquote average citizen, which is this kind of coded white supremacist figure participates in the violence that, you know, that persists in anti, uh, yeah, in the form of anti-Indigenous racism? I think this is a really excellent point about the abolition of police, because it also connects with Chanel and Elaine's article around identifying the agents of violence against sex workers that include bylaw officers as well. So it's not always strictly police officers. There's a whole class of people who are deputized to enforce um, white supremacy in this country. In the case of Indigenous people, there's also an interesting parallel between the deputization of white settlers and the deputization of what Du Bois called small whites in the era of reconstruction in the United States, where at this moment post-emancipation, when freed Black people had so much in common in terms of worker oppression within the growth of capitalism, there was so much opportunity for alliance between the white working classes and the freed Black people. It was a moment when the so-called, what he calls the small whites, chose to identify with the white owning classes in a move of racial alliance over working class alliance. And similarly in Canada, you can see this massive identification of working class white people with white owning classes as a way of defending a white supremacist foundation of this country that's really grounded in property rights and the bigger threat to white people Um, over capitalism in some sense, even though it's definitely working against their interests, is the threat against their private property. Um, You can see this in too many cases of violence against Indigenous people in Mi'kma'ki, but also in the prairie provinces where, of course, Colton Bushi was killed when Gerald Stanley was defending his property or more recently in a case unfolding of violence against two Métis hunters during COVID who were trying to provide for their families um, and were uh, murdered um, by white people protecting their lands, allegedly or supposedly, or that's how they're framing it. All, All of these cases show that the defense of property against Indigenous people is really what I think shores up this white supremacist power. Yeah, I mean, um, and there's this new article. It makes me think of the this article that just came out recently in the Narwhal by Matt Simmons that you know chronicles these extension extensive connections between uh, extractive industries, energy companies, and the RCMP, uh, which is about you know encroachment for the purpose of like resource development. You're quoted, Shiri, in that article as saying that uh, there's this love triangle that exists between Coastal Gaslink, RCMP, and the BC provincial government. Um, so that's an extensive level of complicity. And like even more pointedly, I think you say that, quote, there's so much mystery to unpack about the authorization of these pipelines. Um, you know, this is what your, your chapter is exploring. Ch- Canada is a bad company, mm-hmm. where you write that. Uh, in the country now called Canada, 
There are, quote, property laws that claim to override centuries of indigenous tenure and criminal laws that we're, spo- we're supposed to assume supersede indigenous jurisdiction. Um, but you're, you're obviously trying to push against those assumptions when you ask the question, what is the difference between being above the law or an enforcer of law if your role is to uphold a colonial legal order invented to justify dispossession? Um, so you're like, you're positioning yourself in your essay as a person who I think advocates for land back for this, this, you know, for sovereignty and, and maybe even more radically, like the dissolution of property rights, the questioning of it. Um, you've written elsewhere on the destructive effects of extractivism and the challenge that indigenous sovereignty poses to the settler states, just, you know, huge investment in energy in this, in this country. Um, could you maybe speak to your, you know, your feelings about included, being included in that Narwhal article, what you were trying to accomplish and framing it the way that you did. And, and, and I guess, you know, relatedly what you're trying to do in the chapter. Yeah. Um, I'll try to make it, uh, I'll try to make it clear. It's a complex kind of historical argument that looks at the relationship between, um, colonization, extraction, and, um, police. But it's not that complicated in the sense that the continuities are clear. In the Narwhal article that you quote, there's a relationship of collaboration between these different parties that are all hand in glove to remove Indigenous people from the path of development and extraction on their territories. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think to draw the line all the way back, this is not an anomaly or a question of illegal practices. I don't think that the point for me anyways, is to Mm -hmm. say there's malfeasance here because there's this collaboration between these parties. Um, My point in the chapter for the book is to say, this is the blueprint of our country. And the example that I give is the establishment of the Hudson Bay Company through a land grant from the King of England to Cousin Rupert, um, which uh, granted Rupert's land, which is essentially a third of the whole country today, current boundaries, um, in order to have exclusive um, hunting, trapping, trading rights for Hudson Bay Company. This is the lands of the Innu, the Inuit, the Ojikri, the Cree, the Assiniboine, the Ojibwe, the Gwich'in, the Dene, and so on. These are unceded lands that were granted, um, you know, by this um, charter mm-hmm. to a company, and the company precedes the country of Canada. So, in some sense, there already was juridical powers allotted to a private company to enforce law um, and to govern the territory. And then those lands were sold to Canada in 1868 um, for 300,000 British pounds. (laughs) What were they selling? A stolen land that was chartered to the um, king's cousin. And when the land sale went through, the Métis rebelled. They rose up in arms saying, you can't sell lands that aren't yours to own. We have territorial authority over this land. And it delayed the sale of of Rupert's land for an additional year and then was settled with the Métis. And then later, you know, 
um, enforced in really uh, antithetical ways to the original agreement through British police forces, uh, military forces. And then that pattern continued across the prairies where the Northwest Mounted Police were mounted, the, the predecessors to the RCMP were mounted in order to enforce um, treaty uh, treaty um, deals across across the country. And of course, each of these is specific and it's not to dismiss the validity of these treaties, but from the um, Crown's perspective, the treaties were important in order to clear the land for settlement. Um, and so this relationship between the clearing of lands for CN Rail, for colonization companies, for private settlers, the um, Hudson Bay Company got a huge amount of assets and land through the deal. Um, and the negotiators of those deals were often also on the boards of these private companies. The foundation of the country is really based on that quixotic love triangle between the police, private companies, and uh, Canadian government and provincial governments. And so mm-hmm. it's not a... It's not an accident that right now you're right now you're seeing the collaboration, the intense collaboration between a pipeline company, uh, government, and police forces in order to remove indigenous peoples from their lands. We have quite a bit of practice in that area. No, absolutely, and and I think like it's just this like revoltingly violent, infuriating history that you know if if you tell it, it just like. If you tell it in the way that you're telling it, it reveals this like matrix of oppression that persists into the present. And and you know I want to come back, um, Aline and Chanel, to the question of of how laws are similarly oppressive in this in the space of sex work. But to just stay on this point uh, a, a little longer, like there, you know, the essay that you've written, Sherry, talks about the use of injunctions as a legal tool. Mm-hmm. Um, you say that almost invariably very little evidence is needed to win these cases. Um, you hardly even have to prove a case. You say almost 100% of injunctions filed against First Nations by corporations and governments involve resource extraction or development. Mm-hmm. And they have an over 80% success rate at obtaining them, which rises to 90% when provinces seek them. Mm-hmm. I just recently attended a, a webinar where I asked Anne Spice, uh, you know, an, an indigenous critical theorist and organizer about the instruments that might exist to like resist the legal definition of land, this sort of doctrine of discovery as something that can just be taken from rather than, you know, something sacred and necessary for survival. I asked about like revoking terra nullius. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what was interesting is like, you know, Spice is, is involved in these frontline struggles. And so she's like, insisting on tactics of resistance that will work now. And she talked about like intervening at the sort of um, survey and permit stages to interrupt extraction projects uh, by just like focusing on revoking crown title as the sort of legal embodiment of terra nullius. In relation to to this, I wonder if you could expand on like why it's so hard to strike down these injunctions to fight against them. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk in the article about like the financial harm that corporations are able to cite and how it's like, it's hard to, for indigenous communities to sort of cite similar harms. Spice is, is talking about kind of inventing strategies for making those harms um, apparent to a legal system that is unjust. 
um, you know, why is it important to understand these logics sort of in historical context? And what, what do you think can be done? To bring this back to Elaine's point about who the Canadian citizen is that's represented often in abstract legal definitions of Canadian citizenship, the de facto assumptions behind us, behind injunctions and the reason why corporations can get them so handily is partly because of the way that harm is defined and that harm is defined in mm-hmm. a very um, classic capitalist definition of disruptions to potential profit, uh, losses, employment, and so on. And so in terms of the injunction research that you cited, that was, I led that work at the Yellowhead Institute for our land back report. And we had been hearing, you know, for so long about the way that injunctions, as Art Manuel called them, were the legal billy club against Indigenous people. What's really important to note about the effectiveness of injunctions is that injunctions started to become more prevalent and more successful for corporations and governments exactly at a time when Indigenous people started to win constitutional recognition um, for treaty rights, treaty and Aboriginal rights. And what happened was the court started saying, oh, well, now you, you need to go and litigate these rights in the courts. Like, we can't deal with this at the injunction level, which is just an emergency sort of stop gap lever to pull if some emergency, you know, um, measure needs to be taken uh, before an actual trial can can unfold. And so in those uh, those court proceedings that have unfolded since 1982 for to determine Aboriginal rights and title have been extremely expensive, extremely costly, extremely lengthy. And so the courts are um, undermining all of that jurisprudence and court and, and case law around Aboriginal rights and title um, and just determining Aboriginal rights based on um, whether, you know, they, they constitute irreparable harm or balance of convenience, which are the injunction tests. And so um, I think another person who was on that panel that you talked about was Irina Sarek, who I've been working with really closely on injunctions as well. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think Anne Spice is, is absolutely correct, which in, in her assessment that what underlies the success of injunctions is this prevalence to favor economic harm in the form of financial harm. But it's also the fact that that kind of harm is premised on the sanctity of property rights which kind of underlies the, mm-hmm. the possibility of people making profit is that they can prove that they're entitled to it through their property rights, which include their permits and licenses and so on. And so underlying the injunction and the success of the injunction is this uh, fabrication of crown title. And, you know, the Hudson Bay charter is just one example of how that title was fabricated, but underlying this whole country is the mythology of underlying crown title. So I would say just as a last point that, you know, anti-colonial abolition perspectives have a sort of tagline that you could say, which is, you know, no foreign law on indigenous lands. That it's not just about the police or prisons. It's the imposition of a settler system of law onto people who never ceded or surrendered or gave up 
their governance systems, their inherent legal systems, their social and cultural systems. So the prison system isn't just about like, oh, there's a disproportionate amount of indigenous people in prisons. Why is that? It's like, no, why are why is that law being applied to indigenous people at all? Hmm. It calls the entire apparatus of the state into question. And police and prisons are just one really central form of criminalization that continues to remove indigenous people from their lands. So it's in continuity with other forms of containment, like residential schools and the reserve system. And now, of course, injunctions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, this kind of carceral continuum that encloses this, the other, as it were, the indigenous other, um, and the life worlds uh, that that still exist, uh, even if the Canadian state wants to almost romanticize them as a thing of the past, like um, you know, asserting that. You know, I I, I don't want to take um, too much more of your time. You've you've all been so generous with it um, and with your your ideas, um, but I do want to maybe come back to uh, Chanel and Elaine and and ask about sort of. Um, you know, how you are building the tools for these forms of resistance against, you know, very powerful legal structures, but also, I guess, how you am- approach like building trust and solidarity within the movement where there is like all this outrage that you have to risk, they have to confront in order to even like make progress. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier, Elaine, is this, the role of like NGOs, uh, which are sort of this like professionalized version, I suppose, of activist organizing that you, you're saying can kind of work counter to social justice and, and liberation in a lot of ways. Um, you talk about your, you, you both talk about your experience of being like basically intimidated at this national forum on human trafficking, where Again, it was like clear that your radical support for sex workers and their, your solidarity with them was not going to be tolerated. And I found that story particularly striking in, ter- in terms of like trying to build trust and solidarity in these spaces that shouldn't necessarily be hostile. Um, so, you know, I, I wondered if you could speak to that experience, basically, of being like angrily excluded as radical activists from the conversation uh, and what it reveals, I guess, like. To what extent does that like existence, that persistence of like morality, uh, allow NGOs to maintain this this like hostility to radical politics? So I think for me, when we talk about hostile, it's not on the individual level or like the just the NGO level. And I think I mm. totally agree with like Sherry used to uh, illustrate how um the 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 injunction so that is the problem of the legal system. And we also need to know the 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 police is the one execute carry out that legal system so that we also need to understand the legal system in the way they are the very powerful tools to maintain the power and oppress. And so that's why when we look at policing, this is also necessary to look at the law and policy and particularly for Asian migrant sex workers. So they are facing different kinds of the law of oppression like criminal law, immigration law, uh, by law, all together 
and of course also family family law that's like um to have this giant immigration law everything come together to to oppress and then we also need to look at the policy making process the house white supremacy play out in order to make the law maintain the power and how the ngo is the active role involved in that so that's why my hostile is not the attitude what i really want to use the hostile we experience to really draw the attention for whole legal system and all policy making process are also hostile the hostile in the way is they keep excluding the voices of specific people so for example um for migrant they cannot pass the english test no matter how many years they stay here they cannot get the citizen so this is a powerful way to exclude like racialized non-english people to have this political power that to involve that they can be more influential in this policy making process and in last few years but if i have involved in like um uh the lobbying of uh stopping the anti harmful anti trafficking law like fee bill 251 and also like uh this like anti um trafficking policy and criminalization of sex work and also the bylaw but this ngo often get a tons of funding that they do this like so called like um continues to um promote this moralistic uh 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 agenda but at the same time they are also important actor to lobby the policy maker to impose those harmful anti-trafficking policy and that conference is like held by Canadian Women Foundation so they were the active lobbyer to promote the criminalization of sex work conflate sex work with human trafficking and why we bought that space is because there are some changes in the leadership and also some some changes of the organization they think this is necessary to bring in the the the, the voices but i think what i really want to see how this ngo is so powerful this white um anti sex work organization they are working with the politicians sometimes when we um go to the city meeting they call them friends hmm. and they are so hostile for this migrant even we have 300 workers went to city hall and our city staff say you know no matter how many people you come is useless and so that's why it's so important to have the allyship because as racialized as the people don't speak english and marginalized sex worker massage worker the politician do not hear, uh, hear the voice and also the 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 city staff do not hear the voice so that's why it's so important to build a movement to bring the people with different power no matter lawyer no matter th- those people have like um economic social status power to together and also build the solidarity of different movement and instead of like having seeing this issue as the allies to support this movement how they see migrants issue as their own issue how they see sex worker issue is part of the racial justice movement how they see the the sex worker issue is the anti poverty mm-hmm. movement so one of the example is in newmarket now they just changed the bylaw anyone if they want to do massage they need to get the credential from accredited institution again this is a anti migrant and racist policy if you can't speak english if you're not rich you cannot get the credential so this is the system that to make 
that white people continues can offer the massage, but the poor Asian, the non-English speaking people become illegal. Then they can bring in the law enforcement, right? But in the lobbying, that it's so difficult to to disturb and change it, and so that's why Butterfly keep bringing the campaign to to call for the racial justice organization not come in with the movement as the ally. But how you see this policy is the racist issue that you also have responsibility to 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 contribute and 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 support. And same as the anti-trafficking movement. When you think you are the abolitionist, so that you need to know the anti-trafficking movement itself is pro-policing, pro-criminalization, pro-prison is harmful to, uh, for the woman, so that you also need to stand with the sex worker to push back this policy. But I think when we talk about allyship, it is very important to center the voice and having the leadership from the community to lead the movement to make it happen. And I think one of the very important work of Butterfly is keep bringing and building the allyship to see the intersectionality of this issue and seeing what's the giant mechanism, white supremacy, racist and anti-migrant um, capitalist, you know, homophobia, everything, you know, operate together so that to to join together to, to, to stop this machine and, and bring the real justice of the community. Yeah, trying to yeah make clear how the machine works and reach to the kind of roots of how it's operating um, and articulate it for people. This is what your your piece does in talking about the PCEPA legislation that's been so detrimental to sex work, sex workers. And I see you know connections to what Shiri was saying around you know how um, these injunctions are in some ways a direct reaction to. Um, uh, gains within indigenous communities, claims to land, um, and and you you basically make it clear that uh, this legislation was a reactionary piece of conservative legislation that really was designed to counteract the gains of sex workers. Um, and so yeah, I mean I, I I won't take too much more of your time, but uh, I just want to like thank you for for kind of clarifying some of the you know claims of the book, which is like incredibly insightful. But is like fundamentally about, as Chanel put it earlier, like taking the the boot off the neck, and trying to address the problem by thinking radically about like redistributing wealth, redistributing power, um, and making the sort of systemic edges of society visible in a system that demands and yet resists change, basically. Um, so you know, any any closing kind of thoughts that people wanted to share though before we um, sign off today. I think this is really, really important to read the book. <laughs> so, yeah. so they have like different author and bring in different experts with the like um uh, uh and I think this is also important. You share this book and also the voices because we need to have to build the power to change, and we need more people know more about the problem of policing and criminal system and prison system, and we need to build this collective power together to make the change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also just want to say, I think it's a great book. Thanks, Scott, for having us on to talk about it. Um, I think it's a great book for people who want to understand abolition, uh, both within so-called Canada and outside, because um, I think that the book brings contributions 
two abolitionist movements and thinking that I haven't seen in other collections. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I, and I really want to credit Shiri and the other authors for that. Yeah, and I, I also want to add, because Shiri, like this book chapter really inspired me and Chanel continues to write more because we cannot include so many things in this book chapter so that we decide to write a book uh, together. So, and we hope that uh, we will also have a book to illustrate more the harm of anti-trafficking movement and and like to uncover more like what um, problem of the machine behind the anti-trafficking movement is operating to maintain the power and also how to oppress the people. And thank you for sharing. Thank you. Oh, well, that's the best outcome of all, which as we say in the, in the introduction, I think, or meant to say, it's really just the beginning. It's the seeds that are planted here that'll continue to grow and hopefully um, the movement grows around the, uh, all the new branches.